0: Legal scholar Sarah Ramshaw accounts the famous 1997 encounter between musician Ornette Coleman and philosopher Jack Derrida and what this meeting might have to say about ideas of law and justice. This performance was recorded on the 21st of August 2018 at Make It Up Club as part of Liquid Architecture and Melbourne Law School's eavesdropping takeover. Paris. 1st of July, 1997. On stage is free jazz innovator, saxophonist Ornette Coleman, performing at La Viette Jazz Festival. He turns to the wings and signals French philosopher Jacques Derrida to take the stage with him. No introduction is given. Derrida is met by a microphone and a music stand. He begins to recite the following, interlaced with some playing by Coleman. Qu'est-ce arrive? What's happening? What's going to happen, Ornette, now, right now? What's happening to me here, now, with Ornette Coleman? With you, who? It is indeed necessary to improvise. It is necessary to improvise well. I knew that Ornette was going to call me to join him tonight. He told me so when we met to talk one afternoon last week. This chance frightens me. I have no idea what's going to happen. It is indeed necessary to improvise. It is necessary to improvise, but well, that is already a music lesson, your lesson, Ornette, that unsettles our old idea of improvisation. What's more, I believe that you have come to judge it racist, this ancient and naive idea of improvisation. I think I understand what you meant by that. Not the word or the thing improvisation, but rather the concept. It's metaphysical or ideological implementation. As all of you can see, I have here a sort of written score. You think I am not improvising. Well, you are wrong. I am pretending not to improvise. I just pretend. I play at reading, but by improvising. Regarding his musical work, Ornette said that the written parts are as improvised as the improvisations themselves. That is a great lesson, your lesson, on what's happening, when it's happening, to the improviser, unforeseeably, without seeing it coming, unpredictably. Derrida's performance ends prematurely, after only 15 minutes, when the audience, intolerant of this unaccustomed form, boo him off the stage. Derrida is left extremely shaken by what he later accounts as a very painful experience. The trauma experienced by Derrida at the Laviette Jazz Festival provides a fortuitous opening to the concept of trauma in his work. Trauma for Derrida emanates from the unexpected, the unprecedented. In its very strangeness, the unprecedented frightens us, causing trauma and pain, At the same time, though, it is the repeated trauma of the unprecedented which brings hope and possibility. It ensures that change is possible, and perhaps even inevitable. This promise of change, both in society and law, produces an ethics of hope. That is, an openness to the other, to the unknown. Trauma is thus not as negative as it first sounds. Instead, it is only through such that possibility emerges. Improvisation is always traumatic. By definition, it must create something entirely new. It must make known that which is hitherto unknown or mysterious. As such, improvisation constitutes a singular event, which when read through the work of Derrida, generates trauma. Any first appearance of the not yet recognized unsettles and destabilizes our current knowledge and understanding of the world. Nothing can prepare us for the arrival of the Holy New. For Derrida, though, as soon as the unexpected or unprecedented is perceived um, as unprecedented, it enters into our culture and becomes the subject of analysis and normative judgment. The process of normalization has thereby begun. As a lawyer and legal academic, it is difficult for me to speak of the unprecedented without being reminded of law. The common law tradition, both of which Canada, where I'm from, and Australia follow, proceeds on the basis of past judicial decisions, which are called legal precedents. Precedent is defined as a decision of the court considered as furnishing an example or an authority for an identical or similar case afterwards, arising from a similar question of law. In its reliance on past legal decisions, precedent assures that like cases will be treated alike and that similarly situated individuals are subject to the same legal consequences. The rationale behind the doctrine of precedent is quite straightforward. Namely, judges should not have unconstrained discretion to enforce whatever rules they please. It encourages the view that judges should not spontaneously invent law and any judicial activism should be strictly controlled or reined in. Precedent thereby limits the scope of judicial power. It restricts the role of the judge to determine the law in each case, not according to their own judgment, but according to known laws. Judicial power, therefore, does not allow a judge to invent laws, but to determine only what the law is in accordance to the laws previously pronounced. Moreover, precedent is often viewed as integral to justice. It encourages the public to have faith that justice will be done, and consequently allows the public to trust their affairs to the adjudication of the courts. Now, you may find it strange that I am here talking to you about law on an improv stage. Um, However, for me, as James pointed out, um, law is fundamentally improvisational in nature. As no two legal actions can be exactly the same, judges are, in effect, making new law every time they are asked to judge a case. It is a negotiation between the pre-existent and the new. Law can thus never neither dispense with nor be completely determined by the device of precedent. The legal decision instead lies on the border between what it is and what it otherwise could be which is the same for musical improvisation or improvisation in general. While the law, in order to remain legitimate and forceful in society, must be seen to eschew all spontaneity and unpredictability, the converse is true for improvised music, which must mask its structured elements in order to be viewed as revolutionary and creative. The improvised act must be inaugural or singular moment, a first time ever, created in the moment of performance. Yet this first time, in order to be completely original and unique, must also be a last time. It must be singular, complete, and containable. But to be so purely present, though, would erase all relation with that which is outside, and recognition as improvisation would be impossible. It is therefore a paradox, or what Derrida calls an aporia, that improvisation is constituted by its originality, and yet wholly dependent on established conceptions of what constitutes originality to be recognized or legitimized as original, as improvisation. The trauma of improvisation as the unprecedented brings it into a relation with the generality of law such that both can show themselves as simultaneously original and pre-established. This fact is not lost on Ornette Coleman, who stated in an interview with Darada prior to their collaboration. What's really shocking in improvised music is that despite its name, most musicians use a quote-unquote framework as a basis for improvising. Improvised music, in other words, has two characteristics. It's totally improvised, but at the same time, it follows the laws and rules of European structure. And yet, when you hear it, it has a completely improvised feel. Law also cannot subsist without an openness to what it is not, just as improvisation requires some determinacy in order to endure as a distinct entity. It is therefore the impossible necessity of both pure generality and pure singularity, which impels both law and improvisation into existence. The repetition of the trauma of improvisation becomes its law, and without such, justice would not be possible. Drawing on Levinas, Derrida equates ethics with hospitality and otherness, with the notion or act of being hospitable to the other, to the stranger or foreigner. For Derrida, hospitality as ethics can only be understood in a double sense. On the one hand, absolute hospitality, or what Derrida terms the capital-L law, requires unqualified generosity and open borders and doors to all visitors. This unconditional welcoming of the unpredictable other involves a certain level of risk, for there's always the chance that the stranger or foreigner will destroy everything or even murder the hospitable host. Ethics as absolute hospitality is thus only possible when certitude is abandoned, when risks are taken. This absolute hospitality, however, is constrained by general or conditional laws, such as those in place to protect protect the all-welcoming host from unsavory guests who may wish to trespass or steal from her. Ethics as hospitality, therefore, entails an openness to the unexpected, but also constraints on this unpredictability. Improvisation shares with ethics as hospitality an impossible openness to the unpredictable and uncertain other. To be recognized as improvisation, it must obey certain pre-existent structures or laws. As Charles Mingus says, you gotta improvise on something. That said, improvisation simultaneously involves a pushing beyond the known and predictable, without guarantee or certainty, as such it chances failure. The ethical improviser must thus embrace failure and error as a source of learning, and the most accomplished improvisers turn unexpected problems into musical opportunities. Even when improvisa- improv- improv- oh, sorry, improvised encounters fail, like that, sorry. Uh, they can actually lead to listeners, provide listeners with an important model for rethinking how and why they need to find productive ways to address encounters with difference. What is at stake, then, when improvisation fails and to whom? Leading uh, scholars in the field of critical improvisational studies, uh, Fischlin, Hebley, and Lipsitz, list some instances in which musical improvisation may not be seen or heard to succeed. And I'm sure you all know many, many more than this list. Um, so one is, um, the music fails to surprise us. It simply resorts to cliches or relies on habitualized gestures. Another is that the w- musicians are unwilling or unable to listen to one another. Uh, Another one is authoritarian musical gestures are deployed or the musicians are more focused on the development of their own virtuoso techniques than with the collective endeavor. And I would add to this list that improvisation might fail when the audience does not have the context or experience to properly engage with the performance. Improvised music, especially that in the more experimental quality or va- variety, can be very challenging to listen to, as I've, I've learned over the past several years. Thus audiences, as with musicians, need to practice and hone their skills of listening. However, as Fischlin, Hebley and Lipsitz note, even in so-called failed improvisations, there always remains the spark of what might have been. The fact that chances were taken or not, and that performative agency enacted, however successfully, can still teach the listener something valuable. Returning to the coleman Derrida encounter, uh, the question becomes, in light of the traumatic foreshortening of Derrida's contribution, was it a failure or a success? And does it really matter? Says Derrida, I knew Ornette was going to call on me to join him tonight. This chance frightens me. I have no idea what is going to happen. Derrida's text at one announces and invokes its own unpredictability and the possibility of failure. As Edgar Langreff astutely points out, acknowledging the unpredictability of the future and how the future will come to define the present, the delivery of the speech plays with its own fallibility its openness towards the advent of something unexpected, unplanned, unforeseen. What Derrida makes evident is that even the reading of a seemingly fixed, precomposed, prearticulate pre-articulate text is in a strict sense an improvisational exercise. Again, boring from Landgraf, the reader can never fully control what is happening, nor foresee what will happen. Derrida's text, dialogic and self-referential, and not accidentally so, because these are key uh, features of jazz improvisation, blurs the line between composition and performance by making obvious its own process of composition and mischievously, playfully questioning its pragmatic status. Derrida's text is read, performed as a written score, but is also authorized to be published after the fact. It is as if, Langreff provo- provocatively adds, Derrida wants to be caught in a lie. Derrida further obscures the distinction between composition and improvisation when he writes or reads, all of you see. I have here a sort of written score. You think I am not improvising. Well, you're wrong. I'm pretending not to improvise. I just pretend. I play at reading, but by improvising. The omissions of the text completely contradict what is most apparent to the audience and later the reader. And paradox ensues. If he's lying, he's telling the truth. He is indeed reading. However, if he's saying the truth, then what we perceive, namely Derrida reading a text, would indeed be a lie. Landgraf explains, the point of staging or stating such a paradox is to demonstrate how it is the reception of the performance that determines its meaning. A meaning, however, that cannot find certainty by referencing the intentions of the speaker. For the speaker himself cannot know how his performance will be perceived and how the, or how the created impasse will be decided by the audience or reader. Derrida thus creates a performance slash text whose meaning is unpredictable. For Derrida, the fallibility of a reading is, of course, not accidental, but rather a structural mark of communication, a precondition for the possibility of communication in the first place. Communication works because the meaning of signs, words, text, and language can never be fully controlled or anticipated. Derrida's performance highlights the impossibility of a purely improvised or a purely unimprovised event. There are always traces of text in performance, composition in improvisation, and speech in music. As David Wills remarks, Derrida is inviting Coleman to pretend to speak, just as Derrida has been pretending to improvise between language and music, to create a new language, or a new music, or both. The fact that much of Derrida's text was not actually performed on stage, as he was compelled to leave before he could finish, confirms that the performance alone does not constitute an event. Whether or not the collaboration between Coleman and Derrida can be said to have failed or not, why might a legal theorist such as myself even care about failures in musical improvisation? When musical improvisation does not work, the result is often thought of it in terms of musical or aesthetic failure. But if we consider the complex ways in which improvised music practices inhabit the social landscape, and how problem solving in improvised music corresponds with that in other areas of human experience, then the implications of an improvisational failure in music may be far more wide-reaching and profound than first imagined. Many of you are probably familiar with Christopher Small's book, Musicking. Uh, In it, he writes that when we perform, we bring into existence for the duration of the performance a set of relationships between the sounds and between the participants that model ideal relationships as we imagine them to be and allow us to learn about them by experiencing them. Thus, acts of musicking, as he calls them, in determining their success or failure, should be judged on their success in articulating, affirming, exploring, and celebrating the concepts of relationships of those who are taking part. We may not like those relationships, he points out, but we should understand that our opinions are as much social as they are purely aesthetic. That is to say, we are passing an opinion, not merely on a musical style, but on a whole set of ideal relationships that are being articulated by the musical performance. Thus, when an improvisation fails, the participants, musicians and audience members alike, gain an understanding of how relationships in general can fail. But as critical improvisation scholars suggest, if we listen closely, we can find meaning in what might have been glimpsed in momentary instances where connections take place or are simply imagined. These failures can add in the realization of ideal possible futures, a process of both learning from and unremembering the past and present. It is in this manner that improvisers become experts at forgetting mistakes, as they are only stepping stones to more certain or confident successes. When viewed through the practice and techniques of improvisation, then, failure does not necessitate apology. It is more about being accountable through future actions rather than archiving the mistake and apologizing for such, which is a key technique in transitional justice and reconciliation practices. Doing rather than saying, unremembering rather than reascribing responding to a new situation with knowledge and confidence without the weight of guilt. Apology is an inefficient use of time in musical improvisation. It slows things down, sidetracks and disrupts movement. Viewing law as fundamentally improvisational in nature allows for a certain level of abstraction in which the present bows down before another place in time where at least potentially there is another time and place. This reframing of the question of judgment and justice in terms of temporality is a familiar Derridian idea, the notion that judgment is often out of time, that the times are out of joint. The idea can be conveyed more simply and more musically by noting that whatever the substantive merits or otherwise of the multiple cofactors that go into legal judgment, Sometimes it is obvious that the timings are all wrong. To rework this idea back from the mundane to the abstract, the issue might be phrased as a question. How could the timing ever be right when the past and future, by their nature, are never accessible in the present? Musical improvisation, which can be taken as a continuing and profound examination of the issue of timing, occurs, plays even, in the paradoxical space where the present meets the past meets the future. This is obviously impossible, and yet equally obviously constitutes exactly the nature of this art form. The premise of this talk is that thinking through the relationship between improvisation and time is useful to those interested in critical legal theory and law, for it enables a view of the temporality of judgment or justification as far less static and linear. Musical time and improvisation is somehow a gift outside of worldly time, outside the economy of exchange and restitution. The timeline given by a jazz rhythm section to the improvising soloist may change in character in response to the changes in the character of the improvising solo. Time responds to change, and in so doing, changes time. By giving time to justice in this manner, a more nuanced conception of judgment and justification may be possible. Critical improvisation theorists view improvisation as a complex and dynamic social phenomenon, one that interrupts traditional orthodoxies of judgment and takes on shared responsibility for participation in the community, all the while accepting the challenges of risk and contingency. To say, then, that law improvises, or that it ought to or needs to improvise, should not be regarded negatively. What is needed in contemporary critical legal theory is a conceptualization of law as improvisation, as a creative social phenomenon that is similarly complex and dynamic, and when truly just or justified, aims at all the things musicians deem to be good improvisation in music. To do this, unpredictability must be viewed not as random unpredictability, but as improvisation improvisation critically conceived, or what I like to call the most just improvisation, or the most just unpredictability. What is at stake in this exploration is the continued depiction of legal decision-making as uncreative and static, as a kind of necessary deadness or dead archive as opposed to a depiction of the creative life of law as a dynamic social phenomenon one that pertains to the life-affirming vibrancy of the musical extempore in which the past present and future dance together in a never-ending paradox of living and learning justice and social change a place or space where lawyers and judges come together to practice the ethics and aesthetics of surprise but perhaps this is a music lesson best left for Annette Coleman. Thank you. This recording was produced by Marish Witfegar for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wewurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organisation for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more, head to liquidarchitecture.org.au.